Amen. Please be seated. Well, I feel like I have to introduce myself again. I'm Terry Bone, and I got back about 30 hours ago from uh, three countries, preaching and teaching 11 times, distributing uh, over 1,000 Bibles, 1,500 Christian books, meeting with different ministries, strategizing uh, for the future of reaching into restricted access nations. I was in Dubai, Nepal, and Bangladesh. And uh, God uh, answered your prayers, safety, outpouring, wisdom. Uh, there were some crucial conversations that had to be had. Um, you know, our missions ministry uh, does a lot of work overseas. And uh, we put in, uh, oh, I don't know, in the last six months, a few tens of thousands into different uh, places and um, by faith a lot of it and God has uh, paid the bills and um, really really uh, God's will God's bill is my <laughs> my philosophy I just need to hear right and walk in wisdom and then he takes care of the rest and uh, one of the uh, one of the little serendipities there was there's just like little in, uh, indications all along that everything was working out now life isn't always that way God uses trouble and suffering and persecution and, and uh, changes to your schedule, but just kind of the uh, cherry on the, on the cake or whatever, the icing on the cake, cherry on the Sunday was, um, I got a text when I was coming home and a friend of mine said, hey, guess what? I just realized I'm your pilot on the way home from Dubai. So I, uh, he uh, not only flew me to Toronto, he drove me to my house. <laughs> Because he's actually my neighbor. <laughs> good Christian guy. When was the last time the pilot drove you right home to your house? for? That, that was a good deal. <laughs> I told him, you, you saved me the taxi fare. So uh, that was great. Um, I'm going to uh, share a little more on Sunday uh, with pictures of what God is doing. And um, it's really quite amazing. Uh, I'll give you a little teaser here. Uh, former... A former persecutor of Christians is now, uh, has this ministry. He's an MBB, which means Muslim background believer. That's quite a well-known term in that part of the world. And he um, kicked out of his family, told you're no longer part of this family. Two of his brothers are imams, and yet he's radically committed to discipling people and has a whole church movement in a, a refugee camp where 20 five house churches inside a refugee camp that has a million Muslims. And he is just able to do this. And he is one of the most positive people I've ever met. And uh, we'll tell you more on Sunday. There was a man I met uh, just through a conversation at a coffee shop in Kathmandu. Somebody overheard us talking. And the next thing you know, we scheduled a meeting. And this man came and he said, I grew up in a, a strong Hindu family. And very strong and strict. And my parents hated any other religion. And then uh, my brother was two years old and he was sick unto death. And in desperation, they took him to a church. And he died on the way there. And when they prayed for him, he revived. And the whole family got saved. And this man now leads a whole ministry of sending out people into the rural villages. Um, I'm going to tell you more on Sunday, but I, I just, I can't get 
upset or depressed about the church. <laughs> and when I hear people say, the problem with the church is, I go, you know what the problem with the church is? Saying the problem with the church is. Because it's Jesus' bride, and he loves his bride, and he treats her well, and he's teaching her how to be without spot or wrinkle. Okay? And uh, uh, we are becoming, you know, more like Jesus. And it's just... Uh, the, the, it just doesn't end. I would have people show up. I'd see a foreign-looking guy. That means like me. And I'd say, who are you? Where have you been? Oh, I've been here for 40 years. Not many people know. My wife and I are here. And we've been going village to village and preaching the gospel. And it's just like, you, you'll never hear that in the news. There are just hundreds and literally thousands of God's people that are paying the price that are out there. And there's this country called Bhutan, which is restricted access nation. For you or me to go there, they charge you 200 U.S. a day to be inside the border, and they assign a guide to make sure you're going the right places. So this guy says, he says, we got that figured out. He says, there's pastors inside who've become guides. <laughs> so once they're your guide, you can kind of go where you want to go. And he said, so why don't you come in and see what God's doing? So... I don't know if that's going to happen, but we do know we're going to help them reach, uh, reach into that nation. Uh, there's no such thing as a closed nation to God. There can be closed hearts, because that's our choice, but there's no closed nations or closed neighborhoods. Uh, God is at work, and um, you know, I felt like I, was, I had a constant front row seat to a never-ending God show this trip, and... Uh, I'm glad to be back, glad to share it with you, and um, as, as enthused as I've ever been about the work of God. Now, you might hear it in my sinuses. The one thing uh, that did happen is <laughs> the dormitories we were staying at in, um, in uh, Kathmandu uh, were unheated. So, uh, overnight temperatures of 8 degrees, uh, daytime highs would barely climb up to 19, and then sink down as soon as the sun went. So uh, I had my downfill jacket on from the moment I got out of the shower <laughs> until I went back to bed. It was, uh, how, you know, it's all concrete block, right? Maybe some of you know that. It just never warms up. And uh, I, I resorted to uh, leaving the coffee pot on until it ran dry, trying <laughs> to get some heat in the room. But... Um, uh, most of the people there had colds or were sick that week, and so sooner or later it caught up, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. I sound worse than I am. Thank you, Jesus. And God's given me grace to, to figure out the jet lag thing, too, because it's 11-hour time change. So, intercession, number seven. We're on uh, the nine kinds of prayer. Understand that while I was gone, there's three three sheets. I don't uh, think we're going to get through it all tonight. I think we're going to take two weeks, so try not to lose them. And uh, so we've got actually five pages, so two double-sided and um, then one single-sided. And uh, just to thank you to everybody who actually did pray or support in any way. Uh, and um, yeah, God... Uh, God gave me opportunities to bless some people over there and, and uh, provide for their needs. It was amazing. Um, 
So uh, nine kinds of prayer. I think you did agreement and faith the last two weeks. Maybe not in that order. Um, maybe it was in that order. But I want to talk about this special type of prayer called intercession, which I think is the most misunderstood of all the kinds of prayer. So you've arrived tonight at a Bible study. It's going to be technical. It's going to be a deep dive. And there's going to be a lot of information in scriptures. But the fact that you'd come out on a night like this uh, to, to uh, learn this means you're, you're eager. And uh, we're just in one of those crazy nights where the wind is going in such a direction that it can be dry here and it's a snowstorm in Grimsby because of the lake effect. So I'm driving into a wonderful snowstorm tonight and uh, that's okay too. Um, I think it's the first time I'll have seen snow this, this year. Um, intercession. Uh, people say, let's intercede for, let's intercede for Terry because he's going on a mission trip. But actually what they're saying is, let's pray for Terry. Let's petition. Let's ask God. Let's, petition is when we ask God for things. Oh, that's better. Hey, I like it. And uh, where we ask God for things. And, uh, but intercession is a different kind of prayer. It's standing in the gap in order to restrain judgment and release mercy. That probably doesn't clear it up for you. So, but by the end of our teaching, that will make total sense. So uh, I had to come up with this teaching when I say I had to because uh, back in the time of the revival in our church, we had these people that were seeing visions getting literal physical burdens as they were praying, having words of repentance for other people, and it all seemed so strange to me. I had to, as my wife liked to say, she says, we need to bolt this to the deck of Scripture or throw it overboard. So sometimes when you're having real spiritual experiences that are strong, uh, there's strong feelings, there's strong experiences but there does need to be a reference in Scripture. So this became a very powerful, um, meaningful teaching for me. And I hope we can get uh, uh, do this long enough tonight, or I can do this succinctly enough that we can get to the story I want to tell you at the end, because it all comes together with this story. But in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, it's a famous verse, and it's God speaking. And he says, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I'd not have to destroy it. But I found none. So let's, let's take that apart. It's like you'd take a, a Lego object apart piece by piece. Let's take it apart word by word here. I looked for a person. God is looking to involve us in his plan that's unfolding in the world. And that's our philosophical, theological underpinning for prayer. Uh, someone has said, God does nothing except an answer to prayer. And then someone challenged that statement. We're having a discussion one day. Well, God's sovereign. God can do whatever he wants to do. You know, he, you know it's like, where does a 10-ton gorilla sleep? You know, anywhere he wants to. <laughs> what does God do? What, whatever he wants to. But <clears throat> have you read in the Bible that we are his body? 
He's the head, but we're the body. So if I said, I'm enjoying this study so much, but I need to go home. So I'm going to send my body home tonight, and I'll leave my head here so we can keep talking until we're done. It doesn't work, okay? The head is in charge, but the body and the head work together, and the body, anything the head wants to do is done through the body. So, other than think, other than feel, but even feelings are expressed in a physical way. So, God has bound himself to do his perfect will through his body. When Jesus was on the earth, it was Jesus' body doing the works of the kingdom. But now, you and I are his body. So, how can he be sovereign, but be limited to us? Well, fortunately, he's not limited to us in this room. Because as I was just hinting at and mentioning, his body is worldwide. And whenever he wants to do something, he finds someone who will pray it first. Or take care of whatever might be blocking. Legally blocking. If there's sin that's unconfessed, if there's problems, those things have to be taken care of before God can move and do his will. Because he cannot move in the midst of sin that offends his own character. So whenever he wants to do something and it's his choice, he looks for someone to pray it. And then he does it. That's the way it works. I'll never forget the story of a young man at the time, if you're old enough and remember when the Berlin Wall came down. Shortly before that, a young man who was in Youth with a Mission, YWAM, felt led to get a plane ticket, go over to Moscow. I don't know how he did it, but he stood in front of the, one of the statues of Lenin or whatever it was, and he made these declarations and prayed for a whole day and said, you're finished. In Jesus' name, you're finished. Now, he'd be thrown in jail today. Uh, but this was the time when things were a little bit looser. It was 88 or 89. And it wasn't long after that where the Berlin Wall was taken down. And, and the, the spirit that was you know, manifesting to what we call the Iron Curtain was broken. Now, the spirit finds another place to live. And we get other forms of evil. But was that one young man's prayer that changed the world? No, but there comes a tipping point. There comes a tipping point. And we have that picture of the bowl in heaven before the throne. And at some point, that bowl is tipped over. So every prayer counts. But there are certain prayers that need to be prayed. And I'm going to make this clear, as I said at the end of tonight. Uh, it isn't just one person but when we pray with revelation and we are praying God's purposes, then he does whatever he wants. But he always tells someone first. Amos says, God does nothing except he tells his prophets. Then Amos says, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but God's told me this. So in other words, he's willing to use anybody. He was a shepherder. And God will tell you what he wants to do. And then you start declaring it. As God declared his word and then it came into being, so we, like him, in the same order of things, declare his purposes and then it comes into being. Now this can be taken to extreme where we deny circumstance. And the extreme word faith movement will, has preached that. So once you claim that you're healed, the symptoms are no longer real symptoms. They're just the devil. Well, I don't agree with that. 
I don't agree that you claim it once and then the pain that's been there for four months is now suddenly not real. It's suddenly fake pain. Uh, no, I don't believe that. But we can declare God's purposes until we see it manifest in the physical realm. So God looked for someone who would build up the wall and stand before God. So facing God... Building up a wall is one of the uh, purposes of intercession. We'll talk about that. But to stand before God on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. So the Lord is saying, and this can, can be um, further illuminated by many other scriptures, uh, there comes a point where the sins have risen to the, to the level and God says, that's it, I have to judge. I don't know what that level is in any circumstance. That's the mystery of the mind of God. But there comes a point where his righteousness demands judgment. But, be, but his love desires mercy. You have these two things going on at the same time because God is love. He does judge, but he is love. So his, his righteousness demands judgment. His love desires mercy. And sometimes those two things are in conflict. What do you do? He looked for someone to stand in between. And uh, he couldn't find anyone. It's a sad, sad moment. And so there's a moment of judgment on the nation of Israel. But there are some great times where he does find someone. Like when Moses threw himself in front of God. When God was going to destroy the nation of Israel. And said, no Lord. And God relented. What did Moses say? Why does God need somebody in the gap? What is the dynamic and so what? How does it involve me? Well, let's look at all of that. Glad you asked. <laughs> the need for an intercessor. Father's God, God's dilemma. I've just actually gone ahead on this. The word intercede is derived from two Latin words. Inter, meaning between. Catera, meaning to go. So to go between. To intercede is to act as a go-between or a mediator. Mediator is one who's able to bring two parties together when there's a difference. Difference of opinion. A mediator with the union and the management. It's essential to understand the whole reason for the existence of a mediator has to do with a break in a relationship between two parties. Like union and management. The need for intercession is entirely based upon the consequences of sin. Before Adam and Eve sinned, we didn't need a mediator. God would just show up, manifest himself. There would be face-to-face -face talk. There was no uh, need for a cloud or pillar of fire. He just showed up because there wasn't a break in the relationship. But then when sin came in, there is a problem. And so Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, you know, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, but your sins have made a separation between you and God. Um, I think we all know that. You can look at that if you want. Uh, Psalm, or Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Um, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. First Samuel 2.25, and there's so many scriptures we could use. This is just a little 
a little sampler here. Uh, 2.25. I'm at 25.2. I got that wrong. First Samuel 2.25. If you're having trouble finding that in your Bible, it's right before Second Samuel. Um, if a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Again, in the Old Testament, their revelation was partial. And they're noticing, though, that because of the law, because of the righteousness of God being revealed in the law, there needs to be an intercessor. And Revelation 20, 13 to 15 is pretty severe. Um, we're going to go there just for a minute, just to remind ourselves, because on the night this all came clear to me, it came clear to me immediately after, I don't even want to say it to tell you the truth, but kind of some sort of minor vision of what hell was like. And I never had that before since. I don't, I don't like it. I don't ask for it. I don't pray for it. But in the context of what we were doing that evening, it made sense. And it was just like the Lord was saying, Terry, this is real. There's a real judgment. And there's a real place that people will end up. And just remind yourself of that because we've never seen that before and we don't see it. But it says in verse 13 of chapter 20 of Revelation, the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he'd done. So people go to some sort of holding place until it's time for the judgment. But then when they come back out, Okay, there it is. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, it does say that the devil will be tormented there day and night. It, it is not clear what happens to people. Uh, there are different opinions on that. Very strong opinions. And we're not going to go there tonight. But whatever happens in that lake, it is a terrible and horrible ending of eternal separation from God. And I need to hear that once in a while. Because I'm, I'm, I'm an encourager. I just love good news. And I, I'm full of good news. And I'm, you know, I'm just... I just know God can do anything. And uh, even though there's things in my life and extended family that really need God right now, I'm just, you know, and it hurts, but I just know God's going to show up somehow. And I know, I know that. And I've told you about praying for my brother for 50 years. Like, I've just seen too many good news stories to believe that God can't handle this next issue coming along. But... There is, there is a time when there, there is no more chance. And uh, um, when somebody I knew and loved deeply who hadn't asked Jesus into their heart died, I remember sitting down and saying, I, I can't even praise you today, Lord. I can praise you for any trouble, but I can't praise you for the death of the ungodly. There's no spin on that. And uh, so I sat on my living room floor. I was a young Christian I was really wrestling with that. I'm saying, I'm not going to thank you because it would be false. Somebody who didn't know you just died. And uh, the Lord, uh, I said, I need to hear from you. And the Lord just said, 
None of mine have been lost. It was really powerful. Those that he know will accept him, he says. They haven't been lost. And that's all he would say. And so we need to trust. I might see that person in heaven. I might. I don't know. If they reached out at the last moment. The good news about that is this person never wanted to hear uh, the story of the gospel. But about two months before they died suddenly of a heart attack, uh, I was there at this person's house. And uh, a gospel show came on TV. And I I went to turn it because I thought, oh, he's going to get mad. And he goes, no, 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 leave it on. And we sat and watched it together. And I kept thinking back. Something was happening in the heart. And who knows, in that last minute, like that evangelist said, I ask you, Jesus, into my heart, right? He had about a half hour before he passed away uh, in the heart attack. Who knows what God did in those moments? We're going to be surprised when we get to heaven. Hallelujah. Amen. See, I'm, I'm happy again already. <laughs> so sin has caused judgment, sickness, and death, and separation from God. Romans 6.23 says it's actually the wages of sin. So that's an incredible statement. It's like you're earning this. <laughs> yeah. Some people are so party-hardy and so determined to hang on to their bitterness and resentment, they're really working hard to earn their judgment. And the Bible says, it's, it's your wages. You, you've earned it. You're not going to be punished for other people's sins. You're, you're gonna, you're, you've earned it. And uh, that's a, a solemn thought. And Ezekiel 18.4, if I can go there for you. Uh, I told you this is going to be a deep dive, technical. Um, The soul who sins is the one who will die. Every living soul belongs to me. The father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. That's Ezekiel 18.4, which is a good one to keep in mind if you're, if you're a Bible student. And there's so much talk about the sins of the fathers being visited upon the next generation, all the rest. Uh, that needs some interpretation. Another night, uh, I have written a book that deals with a lot of that. Maybe we'll go into that in a Bible study. But for every living soul, he's saying, you're responsible for your sin. Okay. The next thing is, sin does not evaporate. (laughs) Sin does not evaporate. It's like it evaporates from our memory, and we don't remember things. But that doesn't mean that it's erased from God's ledger or heaven's spreadsheet because of bad memory. We're not redeemed because of bad memory. Well, I, I, for, I don't want to stand before God and say, you know, oh, that, yeah. Well, I forgot about it, Lord, so we're just going to kind of like take a mulligan on that, right? You're going you're gonna to let me off on that one? Just kind of hit the delete key on that? No, that's not the way it works. Uh, Jesus has to pay for it all. And... The, the sin does not evaporate is seen, seen even when Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. It's very interesting because as they start to curse him, you know, and not recognize him as a prophet, he looks and he goes, you're filling up the sins of your fathers. You know, and he's talking generations ago that had stoned the prophets. 
And he's saying, all of that's kind of tumbling down on you in this generation. Because you, you've, you've owned that for yourself. You've identified with their sins. And now you're just like, you've opened the door for everything the devil wants to do and has done. You're identifying with them. Because that, the sins of the fathers were still out there uh, in the, because it's not judgment day yet. There's somehow that sin is out there ready to land on us, ready to influence us, uh, ready to give the devil power and influence because he dines on, on, on the things that are dark and unsurrendered. And so unconfessed sin is still real. It's still there. It's still doing its work. And uh, sooner or later, it will come back and hurt you. Um, I have a whole teaching on this about like toxic waste. When they tried to bury toxic waste in the Love Canal in Niagara, and then they put uh, dirt over it and grass and put a subdivision there. And 20 years later, you know, the toxic waste hooker chemical company and 40-gallon drums and put a few thousand drums in there and covered it up, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, you know, the oily gook was coming out, leaking into basements and coming into puddles and ponds and taking the hair off dogs and causing miscarriages. And so the, the undealt with sins of the former generation will eventually leak into subsequent generations and impact them. It's not their fault, but it, they're living in the same neighborhood. And unconfessed sin... Uh, from our family line won't bring us judgment, but it can bring us harm. It can bring us open door to the enemy to attack us. And so that's where we need to stand in the gap sometimes and say, Lord, you know, oh, my grandfather was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. I wonder if that's got anything to do with me struggling with alcohol. <laughs> I actually had somebody say that to me. I'm like, you're onto something there. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we need to place the cross there. We need to move the devil, remove the devil's rights because these people never repented for that. And so you are, their toxic waste is leaking into your life and you don't need that and it's not fair and you don't want that and the blood of Jesus can deal with it. But it's not your fault, but it is your problem. So we need the blood of Jesus on that sin does not evaporate. And there are times when God will reveal certain sins and certain actions and those who are in relationship to those people stand in the gap and say, Lord, forgive my family. Forgive my people. Forgive them for that. And then God says, okay, now I don't have to judge. I can release mercy. Because somebody repented for the sin. Is this starting to make a little sense now? Because there's real biblical examples here, which we'll get to. So I just the sin has caused this. It's the eternal separation. It doesn't evaporate. It's like toxic waste. It'll, it'll be out there in the atmosphere, and sooner or later it leaks into the environment. Forgiveness requires confession, not bawling and squalling and moaning and groaning and pleading. No, 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 no. Just confession. 
which is the opposite of denial. Okay? And uh, that's all we need is to say, yeah, that's right, I did that. And 1 John 1.9 is so beautiful. You know, if we confess our sins, first it says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. And it's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? We say we have no sin, we're a liar. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is either the Holy Spirit or, or Joshua, who uh, these scriptures just appear as I'm talking. Yes, I think it's Joshua, yes. I don't think it's quite a miracle, but it's amazing how the scriptures just appear on the wall as I'm talking. It's pretty cool. Um, God's righteousness demands judgment. His love desires mercy. So, we're getting pretty technical on the second page here. Um, So the one who grants forgiveness is the injured party or a qualified representative. So like if, if uh, you know, Brother Joe sins against Brother Steve, I'm not related to them, I wasn't there, I can't go and say, oh, forgive me for what Steve did. Uh, that doesn't work. But if, if I'm somehow connected to the one who's the offender, then there's this relational rights that come in where we can identify with them, which is what Daniel did. So here, I'm just going to go through this actually pretty, pretty, um, I'm just going to gloss over it because, um, yeah, I, I do, I want to go down to God to man and man to God. Okay, so Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our sins but if all he was was going to be the sacrifice for our sins, he could have come as an adult, had a quick, painless kill, shed his blood, and he could have been the sacrifice for our sins because he just had to shed his blood. But he was born as a baby, lived in obscurity until he was an adult, three years of ministry, and now it says he's seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. So that's interesting. So, I like to see it this way, is that Christ's role as the perfect human is now complete. Uh, and I believe that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is Matthew 17. He was glorified at that moment. And who showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Bible students, who showed up? Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. See, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And they just came down to give him a high five and say, way to go. We've been waiting a long time for this. No more bringing a cow and an ox to church. Yeah. <laughs> you did it. And he was glorified. And then Peter, not really knowing what was going on, got all religious and said, let's build a tabernacle. Like, let's build one of these, these little temporary tent things we do on the Feast of Tabernacles. And the father stepped in and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. How would you like God to just kind of show up with the voice saying, would you be quiet and listen to Jesus? <laughs> That's really what he was saying. It's, a, it's an amazing moment that we don't teach much on, but I believe it is the moment where Jesus had, had fulfilled and reversed 
what Adam had done. That is, been made as a perfect man in sin. Now Jesus reversed that. Now it says, if you look at, at the context there, from that time on he began to freely talk about the cross. Before that he'd be, shh, 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 my time's not come, my time's not come. Like, don't blow my cover. I got more to do here. But after that, it's like, okay, this, this is the one. And, um, but that's complete. And his role as sacrifice is complete. Hebrew says he sat down once for all. He made a sacrifice. His role as the servant is complete. You know, the humbled himself, being found in the form of a man and, and great humility. His role as God's ambassador to us is complete. His role as prophet is complete. He said what needed to be said about God the Father. It's been said. So it's all finished except it says he ever lives to make intercession for us. So what is not complete is the confession of all the sins that have been hanging out there in the atmosphere impacting God's ability to affect his sovereign plan. So now we're on the next page. He holds a permanent priesthood. His intercession is daily. And he is praying for us. It's mind-boggling. It's amazing. Not mind-blogging, mind-boggling. So now let's look is the... Um, uh, let's, let's move ahead. I want to give you an example. Or we're going to get, we're going to get uh, buried here in, uh, in the details. Let's look at... Um, I want to look at Daniel. That's kind of the, the, the easiest and quickest one. And Daniel. Okay, so flipping over the page from however a permanent priesthood. The next page says intercessory repentance. Greatest spiritual weapon in the hands of a qualified intercessor. And then Daniel 9, 2 to 23. So let's go to Daniel. And let's have a look at what Daniel did and how he prayed. Because this was a great man of God. And he just understood something. Okay. So in the first three verses of Daniel 9, he understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Isn't that cool? Daniel was reading the Bible. <laughs> At that point, Jeremiah was already written, and he was reading the prophet. And he understood, because he grew up in Babylon, why they were there. Why is the nation of Israel in another land serving uh, a pagan god? Or, uh, pardon me, a pagan um, king. Why are we here? And he understood that it was uh, not a desolation uh, like uh, um, the Israel, the, the ten tribes of Israel that were assimilated by the Assyrians, like for good, this was a temporary imprisonment, that, that there was a release date. So you would think, and I would excuse him, if he read that and went, oh, well, why am I worrying so hard? Why am I praying so hard? God's got this one. Okay, that's about 21 years. Oh, no, no, it's only 17 years. Okay, we're, we're good. We're good to go. That's not his response. 
Somehow, Daniel understood that there was work to do in prayer in order for the very prophetic word that had been written down, a sure word, to come up to pass. In other words, God spoke it. It was his choice. But, but Daniel knew that he had to participate in it with his prayers. He was participating in the history of his nation through his prayers. Isn't that cool? And uh, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. So let me scoot through these next uh, four verses. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Verse 5, we have sinned. Oh, stop. He didn't sin. He was faithful. This is the guy that let everybody see from his window. He was praying three times a day. This is the guy that was willing to be thrown into the lion's den because he wouldn't stop praying. And yet, when he sees what's going on in the nation, he goes, Oh, Lord, forgive us, for we've sinned. To me, there's such humility and grace in that. Because, again, I, I would be totally okay if he said, Oh, Lord, you know, I've been faithful to you, but this rotten group that you got me living here with, they need some work. Clean them up. I mean, that's what comes from my, my logic. But he says, we have sinned. And this is actually the spirit of Jesus. Because Jesus came and identified with us. He wasn't like we are. But he came in every way except without sin. He allowed himself to be tempted. He allowed himself to be hungry. He allowed himself to be limited to humanity Humanity that was anointed with supernatural power, but still humanity he wasn't operating like God. He was operating like an anointed man when he was here on earth. The difference between him and you is you have some gifts. He has all the gifts. And you sometimes hear God's voice. He heard God's voice every day, all the time. So he did have a few advantages. But he, he in great humility, identified with us. And uh, there's such power in that. And let me give you just a tiny example. Like, it's so, like, it's just so little. But it really impacted me. So, I was on my way through Dubai. Anybody been to Dubai? Yeah, of course. <laughs> when, when I go to Dubai, I say, don't buy. <laughs> Even the duty-free is expensive. But it's all glitz, and it's bigger, bigger, best, and all the rest. So... My Valentine's Day was with a family at Tim Hortons by the beach in Dubai. It was strange. But um, uh, I went there and um, because a, f uh, a person I know has moved from Pakistan to Dubai, given up his job, and he's trying to find work, and the five of them live in one room. One room. Three families in a three-bedroom apartment with no common area. Just three bedrooms, a toilet, and a kitchen. And this is apartments where the workers live. So there's this underclass in Dubai. So to have all the glitz and glamour and everything that goes on, there's these people that come from these other countries, and they're basically indentured servants. One guy shining my shoes said, I, I'm allowed by my employer one trip home every two years. And so, had a wife and kids in another country. So, um, uh, he said, brother, if you're going to come, you're the first one to come and help. He said, 
I, I really don't have a place for you. He said, but the hotels are expensive. He said, I could ask the person in the next room to go live with someone else for a couple of days. And I said, sure, I'll, 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 live, I'll live in the apartment with you. You know, I'm only there for a short time, two nights. And when I got there and, and just experienced what they're experiencing and was with them, um, their hearts opened. You know, and, and we had this bond because nobody had done that. They'll go spend the money on a hotel and in two nights, you know, that, that would get him two weeks worth of rent, you know, and he's trying to make it. I just thought, ah, and my wife said, oh, good for you. You need to do that once in a while. <laughs> like, just go, you know, humble yourself and do it. So um, I love my wife's directness in her uh, guidance in my life. And she said, yeah, good for you. Do it. And uh, so I went and I, you know, it's, it wasn't a nice room and it wasn't comfortable. But um, uh, I, just, I just feel like I know these people now. I, I feel what they're going through. My heart's open to them. And his only request from me was Bibles. Because you can't print Bibles in Dubai. And so... He's uh, said, anybody that you know coming to Dubai from Canada, bring me English Bibles and we'll come and get them from them. And this is what we need. And I thought, what a life, what a calling to go live in one room with your three little kids and try to reach these underprivileged people who are never going to be great tithers for your church, you know, because he was a pastor. And just uh, the humility of that really got me. And um, just experience it for two days. So I said all that to say there, there's something about the way Jesus just came and, and lived with us and identified. It was much bigger come down for him than what I just said. A much bigger come down. And I think we forget that. How much he just humbled himself. And so Daniel, the humility of an intercessor where he says, we've sinned. These are my people. I'm going to stand with them. I'm going to die in the same hill they die, or I'm going to pray them out of here. And I just love the heart of Daniel there. And he said, we've been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke your name to kings, our princes and our fathers. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we're covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you scattered us because of our faithfulness to you. O oh Lord, we and our kings, our princes, our fathers are covered with shame because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. And then he goes on and he says, you're right for doing everything you've done. But then finally after he, he uh, rehearses that and confesses, in verse 15 he says, Now Lord God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, in keeping with all your righteous acts, verse 16, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and all your people an object of scorn. Now hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. And I believe that without that prayer, the 70-year uh, the release after 70 years couldn't have happened. He was a leader. 
He had authority. He had relational um, authority in that group. And he said, Lord, I confess it. Now release us. So Daniel was an intercessor, and he understood that. Did he learn how to pray when he was looking at the lions? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's where he got the urgency. I don't know. But that is maybe the penultimate example of an intercessor. Um, Genesis 18. Oh, let's save that one for next week. It's so, so powerful. I want to, I, I want this to hit home tonight, so I'm going to finish with uh, a story of prayers that saved our nation. And I was part of the meeting. Uh, I don't know how much credit I can take, little tiny corner, little tiny piece, but uh, God saved our nation. How many people are old enough here to remember the... Uh, the vote on separation. Quebec was going to separate from our country. 1995, you just admitted your age. Okay. So 1995, it had started, it was big time in the 60s, 70s under René Levesque, where Quebec had, had the culture there was, we are mistreated, we've always been mistreated by the English, we'll be better off on our own. So this whole thing became a stronghold because there was agreement power in this lie. Now, where did it come from? It came from some pretty ugly treatment of the English people to the French. French were here first. Quebec City, Montreal, they were being settled by the uh, French people in the 1600s. And um, uh, my history, I should have looked it up. Who put the cross on Newfoundland when they first arrived? Who was that? Pardon me? Yeah, I think it was Jean Cabot, but uh, Jean Cabot. Uh, but whoever it was, they were here first, and then the English came along the 1700s and burned their villages and their houses and put the British flag uh, on Quebec City. The Plains of Abraham was the fight. The British, you know, General Wolfe won. Montcalm, he, he uh, uh, did not win. <laughs> and uh, then there's a license plate in in Quebec, the license plate in Quebec has the phrase, je me souviens. Do you know what that means? I will remember. And do you know what they're remembering? The Plains of Abraham. I will remember the way we were treated. That's the opposite of forgiving. <laughs> I'll remember. Okay. And so that was the culture. And I always saw it like an unhappy marriage. With and I'm British, okay, so I can make fun of the British. Like, go back three generations on both sides. I'm, I'm from the British Isles, Irish on one side and English on the other. It took me a while to accept that, but it's true. And uh, so, um, you know, the British like everything's prim and proper, like the husband that has no feelings or emotions, and then Quebec is just like that feeling artsy, want to enjoy life, wife with a husband who just never listens to her, you know. And it was like this uh, unhappy marriage. And Quebec uh, rightly felt, oh, I remember growing up, I grew up in this area and we'd just make French jokes all the time. And we were terrible to what we said to them. 
And I remember being afraid when we did an exchange student thing in 1969 and I went to live in Quebec. You know, when those students came here, I was, I was afraid what they were going to do to me as if they knew what I'd been saying. And um, so, uh, Lucien Bichard came in, in charge of the separatist party and he said, we're going to have a vote. The vote will be on a certain date in, in November, whatever, in 1995. And the vote will be, yes means we are to separate. No means we will not separate. Leading up to the vote, the Gallup poll showed that the yes vote was ahead of the no vote. Significantly. And uh, I remember that even um, uh, was uh, Canadian Air Force, or there was a show that was, that was um, like they would, of course... Um, they would do the show days ahead and then show it the next week. So they did a whole show about Canada being two nations now. <laughs> like, everybody thought it was going to happen. And then I went, uh, so it was, a, I guess there was a few weeks in between here. And I went to an Intercessors for Canada conference in Hamilton. There was 1,100 people. And, in, and that's where I had that vision of, of hell, that brief... Um, more of a feeling than anything of how terrible it was that people would be lost. And then um, the leader stood up and he said, we're going to do something. Anybody that's from Quebec, please come to the front. 1,100 people, about 35 people came to the front. He says, now anyone who's British in background or from Ontario, come forward, pair up with them, and I want you to repent to that person. And... Uh, just pour out your heart and repent. Now, I was right up to the front. I knew that I needed to do that for me and also for the nation. So we went we did our thing and we repented and the whole place prayed and it was a magnificent three or four hour meeting. The whole thing was amazing. And after we did that, while we were worshiping, the Lord, I felt the Lord speak to me. Strong voice in my head said, it's enough. Canada will be saved I have hundreds of other prayer groups this week that have been doing the same thing. Okay? So God looked for an intercessor for Canada and he found a few hundred and had them doing this during the week. Well, this crazy thing happened just before the vote. I may not have a... It was about two days before the vote, three days before the vote. Air Canada said anyone who wants to go to Montreal can go free. You can have a free seat because there was going to be a march in favor of Canada. And so 100,000 people showed up and marched down uh, whatever, what's the name of that famous street in Montreal? Anyways, pardon me? One of them. And uh, marched down the main street, 100,000 people waving Canadian flags and saying, you know, we love Canada. The vote... When it, when it happened, oh, and the Sunday before that, I stood up in the pulpit and I said, God spoke to me, Canada will be saved. And so one of the founders of the church, an elder, man in his late 70s, came up to me. He says, Pastor, you know, we love you. We've had some great times. And we know that God speaks to you. He says, but this time you've gone too far. And he says, if the vote goes no, you are really going to, you know, you're going to be embarrassed and it's going to weaken your, your leadership because you said you heard from God. And I looked at him and said, Brother John, 
if the vote is no, or pardon me, if the vote is yes to separate, vote is yes to separate, I said, I quit because I'm crazy. I said, I heard from God, I will resign because I'm, I'm not fit to be your pastor if, if, I, if I heard wrong. And I was that sure of it. Uh, glad we didn't have to prove that because what happened was on the vote, it ended up 50.5%. 50.5% saying stay. That's the no vote. 49.5% said yes to separate. So if a half a percent of those who voted had changed their mind, if 0.55% had changed, it would have flipped. Because then the no's become yes, yes, be, okay. So um, the slimmest of margin. But what happened was that spirit of separation was dealt a death blow. It lost its steam after that. And although there was a lot of rhetoric for a decade, it just like people knew it wasn't going to happen. And it just lost its, it just lost its um, authority. And uh, Canada was saved. It would have been devastating. We would have been geographically split in the middle. Uh, the trade deficits and all the rest, it just would have been a, it would have been a mess. And God saved. But he told me, Hundreds of groups had been praying that prayer and standing in the gap, and it was enough. And I actually believe that Canada was saved through prayer. What do you think? Possible? I really do. Now, somebody else came around and said it was a 1% margin, and that's because 1% of the Christians were praying. And I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of nice math, but who knows? Uh, I don't really know if that's legit. But stand with me, please. And Brother Joshua, if you are listening and can hear and want to materialize, you can. <laughs> if not, we'll go it alone here. But I, I just, I believe that as go the intercessors, so go the church. And as goes the church, so goes the world. Because you know that famous prayer, uh, Second Chronicles.